Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is the Other People Podcast, and I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you're doing all right. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the program on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. So my guest today is Ruman Alam, author of three books, most recently the best-selling novel entitled Leave the World Behind. I don't think you have to be a parent to access what I'm describing, but like that is life that you can sort of veer between this sort of the joy of sitting in this 70 degree water with a glass of whiskey while your husband does all the cooking and the absolute terror that your whole life could just collapse at any second. And we accept that every day. That's true every single day. Every time you get into a car, every time you get onto an airplane, you don't even need to do that. You could just drop dead. Like, that's just the world. That's just reality. And that is really interesting to me. And I think that is fundamentally what this book is about. Okay, that was Ruman Alam. His most recent novel is called Leave the World Behind. It was a finalist for the 2020 National Book Award, and it is now a major motion picture directed by Sam Esmail. It stars Julia Roberts, Ethan Hawke, and Mahershala Ali. Leave the World Behind is now in select theaters and available on Netflix. This is a suspenseful and provocative story that zeroes in with uncanny accuracy on the preoccupations and anxieties and blind spots of the white upper middle class in the United States of America. In the novel, as in the movie, we follow a couple from New York City as they decamp from Manhattan, or I guess maybe it's Brooklyn, out to a rental house on Long Island for a summer vacation. It all starts off wonderfully. The house is beautiful. The weather is ideal. The pool is great. Everyone's having a good time. But then, slowly, strange things start happening. And then, in the middle of the night, there is a knock at the door. And everything changes. 
Leave the World Behind is about parenthood, race, and class, and it explores how our closest bonds are reshaped and even reformed in moments of crisis. My conversation with Ruman Alam is coming up in just a couple of minutes. Before we get going, a quick reminder that I do a weekly email newsletter. I would love it if you would subscribe. You can do that over at bradlisty.substack.com. My newsletter lives online over at Substack, and you can subscribe for free. It's pretty simple. I let you know about the latest episodes of this program. I also share a list of links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if you would like to hear from me in your inbox, you can subscribe over at Substack. Likewise, there is another people Patreon community. And if you like this show, if you listen regularly, if you get something from it, if you love literary culture and you want to support the cause, if you are in the holiday spirit, all of the above, any of the above, go to patreon.com slash other PPL pod, join the other people, Patreon, get yourself some merchandise. There are options, t-shirt, tote bag, coffee mug, sticker, book club subscription, etc. over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Today's episode is brought to you by Tin House, publisher of the debut novel, The Liberators by E.J. Coe. Spanning two continents and four generations, The Liberators exquisitely captures two Korean families who are forever changed by fateful decisions made in love and war. This is an extraordinarily beautiful and deeply moving novel, an elegantly wrought family saga of memory, trauma, and empathy, and a stunning testament to the consequences and fortunes of inheritance. That's The Liberators, the debut novel by E.J. Ko, available now from Tin House. So one more thing before we get going, I just want to let you know that I am offering a annual sponsorship of this show for 2024. Interested parties can reach out to me via email. The address is letters at otherppl.com. So booksellers, literary awards, arts foundations, publishing houses. If you want to have a mention in every single episode of this program in 2024, if you want to talk to readers, book nerds, writers, people who are devoted to literature. That is my audience, and I think it would be an excellent opportunity. So email me if you're interested, letters at otherppl.com. All right, so my guest once again is Ruman Alam. His novel, Leave the World Behind, is now available in trade paperback from Echo Press. And again, the film adaptation is now in select theaters and on Netflix, directed by Sam Esmail, who also wrote the screenplay for the film, if I am not mistaken. Ruman Alam's other books include the novels Rich and Pretty and That Kind of Mother. His writing has appeared in a variety of publications, including the New York Times, New York Magazine, The New Yorker, Book Forum and The New Republic, where he is a contributing editor. He studied writing at Oberlin College and lives in New York with his family. It was so great to meet Ruman Alam. I feel like we were overdue, and I'm excited to share our conversation with all of you 
right now. So here we go, folks. This is Ruman Alam, and his novel, once again, is called Leave the World Behind. You know, writing a book, this is the word you just used in your question. It is an insular experience. And really the publication of that book is the moment that the fever dream of it breaks for me, right? Like when it's published, it's in the hands of, even prior to that, it's in the hands of your editor, it's in the hands of your agent, and they have access to this imagined world. And they begin to speak to you about the, the characters on the page using their names. And you're like, wow, I can't believe you know about Amanda and Clay. I thought I was the only one who knew, right? Like I thought only I was experiencing that. And, you know, I, I don't want this to sound glib, but it does, the experience of writing a fiction, I think, as you probably know, does push you into the territory of a kind of delusion. It can be this feeling that really borders mental illness, I think, because you're thinking about things that never happened. You're thinking about people who never existed. And for me, I, I can tell when I'm really inside of a book when I dream about them, when I get up in the middle of the night and I jot something down, when I see something in reality and it, and I say, oh, that makes me think of Amanda. And then I think, oh, she's not real. So that's a weird feeling. You have to, I think, wade in that particular territory in order to accomplish a fiction. To see that undergo this other permutation to go to the hands of a, a filmmaker who then creates something that is concrete insofar as it has real people in it. It's in real places. You can see the kitchen on the page. I'm simply describing a kitchen on the screen. You're seeing it. That can, for me anyway, felt so destabilizing. And then there's a, another layer of it, which is that, Oh, this person I made up, is being performed by, yes, just another person, but that other person happens to be Julia Roberts, with whom I have some kind of emotional relationship because you can't live in contemporary culture and not have, right? Like, we've all stayed in a hotel and turned on the TV and seen three minutes of Pretty Woman. It's, right. it's, it's just, it's, that's just the truth. And I happen to love Julia, and I happen to love Steel Magnolias, her best film. And so to see this performer who has this body of work that you have some relationship to almost enter into your head and sort of act out this person, it's, yeah, it's many sort of, what's the, it's like a Russian nesting doll of, of madness but in in a, in a good way. I mean, I'm, I'm madness isn't the right word because all of what I'm describing is positive, I think. Like when you sink deep enough into a fiction that it colonizes your reality is when I think I know that I've landed on something, that I'm inside of a book, that it's working, that it's accruing or congealing or whatever the verb would be. And that's what I look for that's what i aspire to that's what i hope for i hope you can i hope i can get to that point once every two years where i'm like my imagination feels richer than my reality or as rich as my reality well and i think that the the experience that you're describing in terms of the adaptation is for most writers a kind of dream come true i think most authors of novels hope or would you think be, so i think i think they would be open to a really good adaptation of their work 
for the screen. If I think for, they're open. They're open to the chuck. Let's be real. They're uh, open to the chuck. I right? was going to say, if for no other yeah. reason than <laughs> it might sell more books and bring more, like, uh, bring a, a, a bigger spotlight to their work. And sure, that's and, natural. And, and that's an incredible gift. An incredible gift. You know, at the same time, I think writers. I don't think you can do this kind of work without being something of a control freak, right? Like you, you're controlling reality itself on the page, you know, even if you don't write realism, like that's what you're doing. And it's an act of pure ego and to, to, to experience, to cede control over that to another artist, a filmmaker, and then a handful of other artists, a, a ton of other artists, actually, a, 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 a an art director, a set designer, a DP, actors, a, a, a conduct, a composer. That's tough. That's not an easy sell. You know, how many writers do you know who have like wept actual tears because they didn't like the cover of their book? You know, that's like one tiny thing that might go not just the way they hoped. But when you're talking about a film, there are 10,000 people who could do something in a way that you didn't like. It's a delicate balance. It's a roll of the dice. And I got really lucky. Because I love the movie, you know. Yeah. I, I feel like you're supposed to like novelists are supposed to be like, oh, I hate the movie. I hate that. I hate that director. Like we're enemies now. I love this movie, and like, what a joy! What a, what a good what a stroke of good luck. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, you were talking about watching it be, you know, your book be turned into this other kind of concrete thing. Conversations that I've had around this subject matter over the years have tended in the direction of being hands-off. I guess maybe sometimes authors will adapt their own book for the screen. But if the book is going to be made into a movie, ideally it's by someone you trust and respect. You have a director who you think has got a real handle on the material. And then at that point, most writers I know will say, and that's it, I'm out. It's their project now, and they're going to kind of make it their own. Was that your attitude? Absolutely. Seems much healthier to me. I'm not going to try and write a screenplay for the first time for a movie this big. And also there's no way any of these actors are going to be in a movie that I wrote as my first attempt at writing a screenplay, right? Like it's just not going to happen. And Sam is a really gifted writer as well as director. And that was for me very comforting, you know, because the conversation, the first conversation I had with him was a conversation between peers. It was like, I'm a writer, you're a writer. Let's talk about what you were thinking about. Let's talk about what I saw in it as a reader. Let's talk about like, you know, your your sort of like sphere of influence and like what 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 were the ingredients that you were thinking about. And I just had a sense that I was in good hands. And I think trust, I don't know if trust really works by degree. Like if I trusted him, I trusted him. And if I didn't, I didn't. And I trusted him. And I think that was well, well placed, you know, he's an artist and I have to let him do what he does. And also the truth is I already wrote the book, you know, I wrote the book and I can, that was my experience of it. And, and I'm saying to you that like, I'm maybe I'm a control freak or maybe it's a sort of comes with the territory, but you have to cede control because the book is dead it doesn't exist until someone reads it. And when someone is reading it, you only have the language on the page to mitigate their experience of reading it. You only have how you've described the kitchen or you only how just have how you've described the woman in the yellow sweater. So you don't get to go home with that reader and tap her on the shoulder and say, are you picturing the woman in the right way? 
you don't, you just, you can't. And so you have to let go at some point. And I, I had already let go of the book upon its publication, to be honest. So I get that. And then I get what you were saying earlier about seeing the world of your imagination suddenly represented on the big screen. Yeah. The piece that we missed is that you visited the set and I think have a, are, you have a cameo in the movie? Are you, do you? I do. Yeah. It's like a Hitchcock vibe. Yeah. Okay. So it's one thing to see the world of your imagination represented on the big screen in an adaptation. It's another thing to physically walk into yeah. the world of your imagination and kind of be on set and see these actors saying lines, you know, either from your book or adapted in yeah. some way from the work that you did. So can you just talk about the onset experience? Yeah. So Sam had 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 it in mind, I think, for quite a while that he wanted me to visit. And I think maybe, you know, there's there there's a lot of Hitchcock in the film, right? Sam himself appears in the film, true Hitchcock touch. And so I think it's fun for him. I think it's like just like part of his sort of artistic signature. And so it was very, very generous of him to say, like, come out, bring the whole family. We'll shoot you in this. There's a one crowd scene. We'll shoot you in that scene. And I mean, surreal is really the only word I can use. Like, you know, the book is set on Long Island, <clears throat> which is a, a place that we vacation as a family. We have a lot of, you know, I have a lot of very fond memories of this experience of driving out to Long Island. And it happened to be in May that we shot this. And it was sort of like this insanely beautiful days sun shining the sky just like insanely blue and it all felt so familiar familiar both from our experience as a family of just being loaded up into the car and driving out to long island and then familiar from the page because that was what i had rendered on the page the book opens with a family of four driving from brooklyn to long island right so my family was then sort of in the territory of this fictional family we get to, we shot in, oh, I'm going to forget the name of the state park, but we shot at a state park on Long Island. You know, you get to this parking lot, it's full of trucks, which of course was my older son's favorite part of the whole thing, seeing all these trucks and hundreds and hundreds of people, hundreds and hundreds of pros, you know, the PAs, you know, the actors, I mean, everybody is massive camera rig. And so then, so I could see the falsity of it, right? I could see that it is an act of, creation of all these people getting together to make something but it's kind of stupefying to look at this sort of army of people actually making something and one of the producers who was on set also said to me something that I found very moving um, because this was in 2021 after what had been a very difficult year for all of us but a year that was extremely difficult for people especially freelance artists and most of these are freelance artists who work in association with film and television production. She said to me, look at all these people who you have employed. And I was really moved by that because I, I felt it. I was like, yeah, these are, these are people, these are artists who, you know, here doing what they do in service of this thing that I dreamt up in some weird, however you dream up a novel. And that was so like moving to me. It was really, really moving to me. And, um, Yes, sur surreal really is the only word. So we're we're so my my family's in our beach duds. We're standing in the in the shot. You know the the DP or the second AD comes out and says like, oh, you guys actually come to the front, and and one of the other um, oh god, I forget what the, the, you know we call we, 
colloquially we call them extras. There's another word for them and I'm forgetting it. Um, one of the other performers was like, oh, well, why are you in the front? And I was like, oh, I wrote the book. And she was like, you wrote the book? Like, what? what is happening? And I was like, yeah, I don't know what's happening, lady. I, I don't, <laughs> don't know ask me. happening, you know? <laughs> and so we're standing up front sort of like as they're framing the shot. And <clears throat> I realized that the four actors in front of us are stand-ins for the principals, right? Because they're, you know, in the same outfits and they're all the same sizes. And then the print, the stand-ins are dismissed once they get the lighting right, they get everything right, and then the actors come out. And, you know, on the one hand, it's Julie Roberts and Ethan Hawke and Farrah McKenzie and Charlie Evans, who play their children. But on, in another way, it's Amanda and Clay and Archie and Rose, who are people I made up. And that's really weird. And one of them is the most famous people on the planet. And she comes up to me and gives me a big hug and is like, hey, so nice to meet you. Are we what you pictured? Are we what you imagined? And I'm just looking at her. I'm like, no, well, no, you're Julia Roberts. Who, what, what kind of delusional novelist would imagine you? Right. None. No, you'd have to be, maybe Stephen King. Maybe Stephen King could write a book and be like, yeah, I want Julia Roberts to play this role. He's maybe the, or John Grisham, but like no one else, not me. Really strange experience, but you know, really sweet, really warm experience the actors were so kind really nice people the whole thing felt really like charmed and positive and then you know i wrote about this in this essay for gq my younger son was like crabby it was like this is boring i am hungry and i was like this is boring because you don't care about this because you shouldn't care about this because this has nothing to do with your life and this is all fake this is all pretend this is people who are just making a piece of art and like, that's great. And I, I, I value that. I really, that's how I, that's, I dedicated my, my life to that. But I get that you just want to go have lunch. I get it, you know? And I think that that's also really valuable because I, th I can see how, I can see how it would be seductive, especially to a writer, right? This is not a job with a lot of glamour. I spend most of my time in this very room hunched over this very computer to go out into the world, especially after 2020, when we had all felt like the world was sort of something we couldn't quite access in the same way and have this beautiful, famous woman give you a big hug and be like, wow, you're great. You know, I can see how that's seductive, sure. but it's not, you know, it's like, you can't, you know, I know I'm smart enough to know that I can enjoy it for what it is and then come back here to this hot little room in Brooklyn and, Get back to work. Get back to work. Well, before we leave the adaptation, I, I do want to talk about the business part of it because you talk about the onset experience and the actual production experience being slow and kind of boring. And that is something I have heard about <laughs> filmmaking many times. Yeah. You read that in any kind of like, uh, how there's a lot of waiting around. That's why they yeah. have trailers. You know, the actors yeah. are kind of sitting there waiting for the lighting to be right and waiting for the sun to do its thing and all yeah. the different pieces of it that have to be ready. So it is, it's not like a sensational experience. It's technical. No. Yeah. And then the other part of it, that's even maybe more, you know, withering to endure typically is the business element of making a movie happen and thinking of a book getting optioned and then somebody yeah. attaches to it. These things do occur. And oftentimes, even though they occur, the movie never goes. I've oh, heard yeah, they so, fall apart. Oh, they yeah. fall apart all the time. Absolutely. This did not fall apart. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I, I think it's a lot less likely to fall apart when you have a director like Sam attached and when you have stars like Julia and Ethan and Mahershala attached, right? These are people who can get a movie made. And Julia and Sam 
have a pretty long professional relationship at this point. They're very, they're good friends. And Sam had envisioned this as a role for her from the outset. And, you know, no one who runs a film studio is going to sit on their thumbs when they have an actor of that caliber committed to a project. They're going to get it done. And I think it's just, again, it's just dumb luck for me. Dumb luck. And I'll take it. I'm thrilled about it. And, but yeah, I'm, I'm realistic about how these things go. And I know many, many people, many of my colleagues whose books are behind me who have had a pretty different experience a falling out with a director, a script that sort of never really comes together. Somebody leaves the project, a producer gets fired as a studio deal ends. You know, these things happen. That's life. You're it's you're it's like a big business with a lot of finance and stuff at stake. And it's so it's quite different, I think, from, you know, the act of just creating something powerful on the page. There are, I'm sure there are, there are a lot of great books that, you know, yeah, there are. Yeah, you and I both know that. Like we 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 already know this. You know. Well, I think there's a some one of the profiles I was reading when I was getting ready for this conversation. I think quoted your agent, one of your like your film agent at CAA or something. She was like, "This is not how it usually goes." Oh yeah, and she says that to me all the time. She said that to me when she called me to uh, Michelle Weiner is my agent at CAA. She's an absolutely extraordinary human being, great person, great woman, great person to have on your side. And she called me when we finally had a deal. She called me to read and she read the contract to me, which let me tell you, it took a long time, but she read the whole thing. And she said to me when we got to the end, she was like, just, I want you to understand that this never happens. She negotiated this contract on a Saturday and Sunday. She called me on a Monday and she was like, I was working on this all weekend. This never, it's never like this. And, you know, it's just kind of a perfect storm of, of the, the, of really powerful talent. It was also, I, I think the, the piece in the times that you're talking about maybe talked about this. This is a, this was a film project. It sold in 2020. So COVID protocol was, was extremely rigorous at the time, but this is a film with almost no one in it. Right? It's an extremely small cast. So it, it becomes extremely easy to control for all of that protocol, which probably made it all the more attractive to go right into production because you, it could be done safely. And so all of these factors, they just, it all kind of just happened. Everything lined up correctly. And it's good luck. It's good luck. I'm probably due, I'm probably due for some bad luck now that I talk about it, you know? Well, I think another piece of it too is there is a prophetic nature to this book. It did sort of predict the pandemic in a way because you're writing about a family that is marooned inside its domestic yeah. sphere and is experiencing some sort of catastrophe. And It's an eerie resonance, but I am always reluctant to, to accept a word like prophetic or prescient because I think the truth is that that is the function of art. It's not prescience. Art becomes what you need it to be. And the best example of this that I have come up with is how between 2016 and 2020, you heard a lot of people talking about 1984 and George Orwell, right? Orwell, when he was writing, was not talking about Trump, right? Robert Penn Warren, when he was writing, was not talking about Trump either. But both of those 
artists seem to touch on something that felt really relevant to a reader in that moment. So you're t- so, are you talking about all the king's men as the yeah, second one? Yeah. yeah. So pe- the pen. So one. what what happens is that we you like that's that's what we use art for. We use it to guide how we're thinking through this particular moment, and we seize on something that we think explains that moment. And it's not the intention of that work to do that because Emily St. John Mandel didn't have some crystal ball and know that someday instead of the Georgian flu, we would have COVID-19. She was simply doing what artists do, which is using imagination to talk about how she thinks the world functions. And then in 2020, that felt so important to readers that they went to her to find something to explain this moment. And I think the same thing happened for this book. And it's just, again, it's like this dumb luck, which is why I say to you, I'm probably due for some bad luck because that was a tough time to come out with a book. And a lot of really worthy books couldn't weather, you know, there was so much, we were all busy worrying about our health and our financial livelihoods and people we cared about and the shape of society. And, you know, that was the summer George Floyd was murdered. There was a lot happening that really was destabilizing to our psyches that a lot of us didn't have time for a lot of really worthy books that we might have had time for in a different moment. But we turned to other books and mine is one of them. And, uh, you know, it's a happy, it's a happy circumstance for me, you know? Well, I want to now take us back to this story's origins creatively for you. It began with setting. You know, it did, which is such a like lame answer in some ways, but I think it really did. I was in this house. It was 2017. I was in this house in Brookhaven, New York, and there was just something about that place. It was a really nice house, first of all. And it was just that sort of like perfect East Coast summer weather, this sort of like insane, flawless sky, had a really beautiful swimming pool. The water was like bathwater temperature. My little guy at the time, 2017, he was five years old, right? So he could just like sit on the step. There was like a big, big flat step into the pool and he just sat there for hours, like so happily. And I just stood there with him, like watching him. I have a very, very clear memory of being at that house. And I think the kids were like watching their iPad or something. And it was like, seven o'clock or say it was probably six o'clock because we have dinner so early and my husband was cooking and I was like oh I'm unneeded here and I like had a glass of whiskey and I was just like lying in the pool drinking a glass of whiskey and I was like this is like perfect <laughs> right right this is the is a perfect experience a perfect moment and I suppose that kind of thing can be really you know it can spark something I was washing the dishes and out through the window. There's a window over the kitchen sink, which to me is real luxury because I live in New York City. You know, a window overlooking the pool and the woods beyond. And I saw something and I was like, oh, what what's out there? It was a wild turkey. There are all these wild turkeys out there. And, you know, it was, it was, I had some kind of feeling of revulsion or fear you know, and you're a parent. So I think you'll probably understand this. Like there's, when there's a pool 
right? My kids were really little then. My little guy was five. You're, 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 you're on guard. You know, you're like, any, anything could happen. That's what life is like. And you have to be really vigilant. And like, you always want to avoid like the tragic story. This is just the kind of like that. And that maybe that's just a fucked up symptom of my fucked up imagination that you're like, here I am on this idyllic vacation that's going to end in my child's drowning. But like, <laughs> in some ways, I think that's the experience of parenting. Yeah. I don't know if you remember when your kid, you have one kid, you know? Two. You have two kids. Yeah. So when they're little, 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 and you're so frazzled and you like don't know, especially when you only when you're on the first one, and the the one day they sleep like 20 minutes longer than usual. They nap 20 minutes longer. And you're standing in the hallway and you're like, okay, the doctor said never to wake the baby up. But like, I don't hear the baby. And like, normally he's up. He's like, I want my bottle. And you're like, well, the baby's dead. Obviously he died in the crib. And I, if I open the door, my life will be over. So I'm just going to stand here and, and like work this out. It's like, okay, well, the baby's dead. So now I'll have to kill myself because I can't <laughs> go on living. And that... I mean, it sounds crazy what I'm describing, but I, I think this is like a real thing. I think that this is like a part of caring. And for me, it's about parenthood. I don't think you have to be a parent to access what I'm describing, but like that is life that you can sort of veer between this sort of the joy of sitting in this 70 degree water with a glass of whiskey while your husband does all the cooking and the absolute terror that your whole life could just collapse at any second. And we accept that every day. That's true every single day. Every time you get into a car, every time you get onto an airplane, you don't even need to do that. You could just drop dead. Like, that's just the world. That's just reality. And that is really interesting to me. And I think that is fundamentally what this book is about. I really think that is what the book is about, is that like, we, you never know what's going to happen to you. You never know how the story is going to end and you can never know. And in order to live, you have to simply accept that. Just living on a knife's edge at all times. But you tell yourself that you aren't. Yeah. You know, because you couldn't do anything. If you were conscious of that, that would, we would call that mental illness. To be hyper aware of danger or fear, it would we would call that paranoia. But actually, it's just realistic. So, so I don't know how you reconcile that, but we all do it. You have, yeah. I mean, it's like you just have to sort of flip that switch and turn off. Yeah. Your awareness of that, otherwise, you drive yourself crazy, or you just live in a like a fevered state of anxiety at all times. And I think my anxiety is plenty as it is. <laughs> <laughs> so you just put it into a novel and get it out of your head. All right. So that's my solution. You leave this idyllic house. And I should say too, that the house in the film, incredibly it's idyllic. What a beautiful home. <laughs> really nice house. <laughs> yeah. It's much nicer than the house that we were able to afford to rent for a week, just to be clear. But yeah, yeah. but really it's the movies. Nice it's, it's, it's the movies. Exactly. Yeah, I'm no Julia Roberts either. So like, you know, <laughs> got to dress it up for the movies. I left that house. I went back to my reality. I often, I also feel a lot of times um, a change of scene makes me want to work. I wasn't working on this book then, but like I had that, that itch at night. So, you know, my husband always goes to bed really early and I was like, Oh, I should be writing. Like what a great place to write. It, it lodged in my brain. I was trying to write a different book 
wasn't really working, although I did write like 150 pages of it. And I, Laura Lippman, the novelist, had uh, very kindly lent me a place, her place in New York. And uh, I was there, it was December, it was right. No, maybe it was January. No, I think it was December. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It was freezing cold, freezing cold. Her place is right by the uh, river. And so it was like especially cold there. And I had, I was working on this book all day and I like trudged out to the groceries. I, when I'm working like that, I'm like a disgusting disgusting person <laughs> and i like trudged out to buy like a can of soup and like potato chips or something revolting uh and it was so cold and i thought of that trip and i was like god i wish i was back in that place i wish i was in that house and then i was like oh that's interesting i'm writing this other book but like i'm thinking about that and this these these two projects have nothing in common and that said something to me and uh, I don't know. I, I don't know. Who knows where these things come from? Who knows how these things sort of snowball? Um, but it wasn't until the following summer, the summer of 2018, that I began really writing the book and understand, like giving, giving names to the characters and trying to figure out like what it was I was writing about. And so I started then and yeah, I don't, I, I don't know why or how. If, if I knew why or how, then the rest of my job would be so much simpler because I would just flip that switch or pop that pill and be like, okay, write a book, you know? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, these things, I mean, I was thinking earlier when you were talking about being on vacation that there's something about being relaxed and happy while also nurturing an undercurrent of mortal anxiety, <laughs> as we've discussed, but being relaxed, you know, being away, relaxed in the, in the pool with your drink and then having ideas begin to come to you. There might be some connectivity there. But yeah, there's something mysterious about it ultimately. And I was reading about the origins of this novel and was interested to discover that at least some part of the early draft of it was written on a secret Twitter feed. Yeah. So at the time, I was working as an editor at the New York Times and didn't have a lot of bandwidth to pursue a creative project with the depth or the rigor that I would normally want to bring to that. At the same time, I was on the subway 45 minutes in the morning, 45 minutes in the evening. That is kind of a lot of time. You're not going to bring your laptop on the subway, although I do actually know a novelist who wrote her book on a laptop on the subway. Uh, so it can be done, uh, but I wasn't going to do that. And also I tweeted all the time, right? I did at the time, I, I, I do it much less now. And I was like, well, I'm writing. I'm just like, I'm wasting my own time or I'm, I'm persuaded myself that there isn't time to do this the way that I want to do it. But that's such a pitfall for writers. And I have so little patience when writers talk about, oh, I need a chamomile tea and I need a sharpened number two pencil and I need like indirect sunlight and blah, blah, blah. I need to be listening to Mozart. It's like, give me a break. Give me a goddamn break. Like that's never going to happen. And you're, you're just telling yourself you're never going to write. You have your imagination. You have access to these tools. Like, you know, anyone can carry a pencil and paper with them at any, you know. And so I was like, just, you know shut up and, and man up and do it. You know, I shouldn't say man up. It's a gross expression, but you know what I'm saying? Like, just deal with it. And so I made another Twitter account. It didn't follow anybody. Nobody could follow it because nobody knew it existed. I actually like, don't even, I don't know if I ever deleted it. So it's probably still there in this soup of the internet. Um, and I just started writing sentence by sentence. I, I, I knew 
that one of the mandates for me was that I wanted to bring a real attention to the individual sentence as a unit, mm-hmm. that I really wanted to do something with, with like a particular sound. I really wanted it to, I just wanted, I, you know, it's not a long book, so it, it can have that kind of attention to the individual sentence and, and writing in that disembodied way. Cause you're not writing a paragraph, you're writing a sentence, you know, on, you know, in that little box, which at the time I think was 180 characters was possible and, and, and was helpful. And I, this is just something I stole from Jenny Egan. Cause you know, Jenny Egan wrote that story black box on Twitter. I don't know if you remember that it was kind of a big deal in its moment. Cause I think I, I believe I, I'm probably getting it wrong, but I believe what happened is that it was a story that was published by the New Yorker, but was first, like it first appeared on Twitter. Do you know this story? No, no, I was, I was, I'm interested yeah. to hear. And this is like very, very like that is Jenny, I think. Like she's just someone who is kind of imaginative about form and and right. She famously has the what is that called? PowerPoint. That yeah, the PowerPoint, thank you, in uh in Goon Squad. So she's just, you know, she's thinking in those terms. And that's gutsy and interesting. And so I I I'm confident I just stole this from her. But Black Box, I, I don't know if it was written that way, but it was sort of serialized that way on Twitter. And I want to say it was on the New Yorker's Twitter account or the New Yorker fiction account. I I hope there's no fact checker. There's probably a New Yorker fact checker listening to me say this and is like, oh, he's getting it all wrong. So I apologize <laughs> for getting it all wrong, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I stole this from from Jenny. Um, but, you know, as people to steal from go, one could do a lot worse than Jenny Egan. Um, and it just, it, it really got me into the book. It did. It was like, that was, I didn't do this for very long. I probably did it for six weeks. I didn't accrue, you know, it wasn't that there was so much material had accrued. It was probably like... A couple pages and I, I never took those tweets and typed them out and put them into a word I never did any of that it was about sharpening my relationship to the sound of the book because I think once I have the sound of the book I know what to do and I say this because I just finished writing a book and I was thinking about like you know I started it what feels like an eternity ago but I remember the feeling of writing those first pages. And what I do is like, I don't look back. I I have to produce a full draft before I can go back. But I remember knowing at some point, I was like, oh, you've you've got the sound. Like, you know how this book sounds. And that guides what follows. Um, And it doesn't come on the first page. You have to kind of go back, you know, in subsequent drafts, you have to go back and sort of bring that sound out from at the beginning. Um, but I think that that's what that experience of working on Twitter did for me was sort of establish the sound. There's a sort of like tautness to the sentences and yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Talking about this kind of stuff is always so abstract and no, but it's interesting. And I think like psychologically and emotionally, even getting yourself into a novel, just getting over that hump of like, okay, I'm going to do this thing. Yeah. Using Twitter and the informality of Twitter and the everydayness of Twitter kind of takes some of the heat off of you. You're just like, oh, I'm just tweeting. You know, like maybe you can trick yourself into working that way. And then I do think there's something to be said for working in a line by line way, which is enforced by Twitter because you can only write 180 characters at a time. So it's enforcing compression on you. It is enforcing upon you, like you said, a heightened attention to the sound of (laughs) the words and the sentences and getting you into some sort of decision-making mode about the music of this particular story. And six weeks later, 
you were immersed enough to have the confidence to take it to Microsoft Word or whatever it yep. was. Microsoft, and good old Microsoft Word. Yeah, you, ha you had the sound. You had the sound. Yep. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. I, I landed on it and I'm glad that I did. And I, and similarly, when I write in Microsoft Word, um, I write five to eight pages at a time and then I'm out. Um, so each, so then the book becomes, <laughs> the computer becomes a kind of unwieldy object because the book itself exists in like 36 Word files. Oh. And I replicate those. So it's like, draft i think i i think i letter them so it's like a1 a2 you know all the way to 32 and it's not quite chapter but it is just a like piece and then i do that again and again and again and again and i don't sort of like pull it all into a single word document until i'm pretty confident that it's coalesced and so i think it was like draft 21 where i finally was working in one file instead of 36 or however many it is okay so this is interesting this is the sort of thing that's actually really interesting to my audience because it's a really like in the i know i know the show i know i know what these nerds are going to care about so uh, these are my people you know okay so working in these little chunks and isolating sections of like like five to eight page sections of writing in individual discrete microsoft word documents that is done to enforce upon you a kind of discipline so that you don't keep going back and yeah. looking at what because Otherwise, what happens is the beginning of the book is really fucking good because you've worked on it so much. And then your your attention wanes because you're a human being and you can't sustain that kind of attention. So you've got to stop looking at what you did on page eight and think about what you're doing on page 64 as distinct from that or as important as that. And also the other thing it forces me to do is that when I am on page 64, I am forced to rely on my brain to remember what was on page one. So I'm trying to maintain continuity. It's very difficult to do. And it's probably a nightmare for my copy editor because she's like, oh, the continuity here is totally off because you are a fucking idiot the way you wrote this book. But I find it forces me to remember what the connective tissue is in terms of motif or thematic or themes or, or, or the language itself to, for, you know, like, uh, for example, I, in my new book, and I know this because I have the index card on my bulletin board, I use the word apparatchik, which is a very specific word. And it's the kind of word you can only use once. 
you only get one apparatchik per book unless you're <laughs> writing about like the Soviet government, right? Right, right? And so I had used that word twice, but I didn't know where. And you can't find because you're talking about 38 different Word documents. So it's not a simple job to locate it. And uh, so this, the, when, whenever I saw it and realized it, I just wrote it down on the index card and I pinned it up over my bulletin board. And it's like I'm technology could solve this problem. I could just put it into one file and find it. But forcing myself to not rely on the technology, but forcing myself to use the brain to kind of deal with this problem was kind of satisfying. So you know, this is just what works for me, for whatever stupid reason. It is just what works, you know? Well, I was thinking as you were talking that if you force yourself to kind of hold the themes and the plot lines of the novel in your head rather than constantly giving yourself the out of going back and rereading, if you're if you're really holding it in your brain, you're also giving your subconscious an opportunity to work on it in a yep. maybe more explicit way than it yep. would if you it was totally lost to you. I mean, I guess the subconscious might know something that you <laughs> that you don't, but it feels like if you're really active mentally in terms of engaging with the material that you probably have like more juice there, right? I do think that's part of it. And so like so and the way the workday works for me typically, especially at the at the outset is that I'm only focused on one of these sections per workday. And the next day, I move on to the next. But I've gone to bed thinking about my work on section 27. And I start the next morning without touching section 27. I start on 28. And so if there's something that has occurred to me that I want to do in 27, I'm forced to remember it. And I'm forced to really internalize it and think about its ramifications on what comes after in the book. So like I said, I think this can introduce a lot of challenges with continuity. I think it can be a sort of like, it's like I'm introducing a kind of resistance. It's sort of like when you're working out and you put a wrist weight on, it's like you're hampering yourself on purpose for the purpose of building up a different muscle or working two muscles simultaneously. And I find it really useful and it really helps me get to know the book in a different way. Well, and, and another thing that I was thinking of is that it also breaks uh, what can seem like to many an overwhelming amount of work writing a novel. Absolutely. It breaks Absolutely. it down into these manageable pieces where you're like, hey, I just got to get five to eight pages done. Absolutely. That's, and then I put it aside and then it's a new five. So it's a kind of way to trick yourself, sort of like tweeting out the early yes. lines. Yes. And I... Uh, the psyche is an, is like your enemy in some ways. And you can't think about this as some huge daunting thing, right? You have to think about it as what it is for that day. If you're in recovery, that's what you say. You know, you're not thinking about, I'm never going to drink again for the rest of my life. You think about, this is the decision I'm making today, right? And that is how you get your mind through it. I, I, I'm sorry if that's like a coarse way to use that metaphorically, but I think that that's really interesting and instructive. You can't think about the whole book because it's so daunting. The idea of sitting down on day one and being like, well, someday I'm going to get to page 300 on this. Like, let's go. And also I found, especially on this last book, but also on Leave the World Behind, um, I can produce the book a lot faster. If I don't look back, I can go. 
the first draft is a nightmare because it's the continuity is all broken. Some of the language is really broken. It can be really repetitive. It can be really messy. You know, it's like you're trying to do a jigsaw puzzle, but you don't have all the pieces. But you have the thing. You have the manuscript. You can't actually start. This is the weirdest thing about writing a book to me is that you can't actually start writing a book until you've written the whole book. You know, so I wrote a draft of Leave the World Behind in like a really short period of time. Three I, weeks. I, Something like that. Yeah, something like that. Like an insane... I mean, that, I wouldn't recommend that approach. It worked for that specific book because it was a very heated... It's a heated book. And so I was like heated as I was writing it. But my new book, I started on October 5th and I finished it on December 24th, which is also like, that's a short period of time. But I think your audience will understand what I'm saying when I say that that first draft is a mess. It doesn't make any sense. Like there's... It's just, it's a bunch of discrete chapters in search of being a book. But when you hold that 300 pages in your hands, you're like, aha, well, now the work begins, you know, and it takes a long time. So, you know, I'm always sort of like hesitant to talk about how fast this first draft and that first draft came together because it makes it sound like I'm Joyce Carol Oates or something. And that's not the case. Like <laughs> I'm not producing at that clip, but I am producing that first draft of that clip. And that's useful, you know? Well, and another thing that I've read about you in terms of your approach to the work is that you will do an outline or some variation of an outline, but only once you have committed yeah. to the project. Yeah. So like, at what point is the commitment? When do you feel safe in making the outline? <laughs> I probably made the outline for this book after for the new book after I finished the first draft. And at that point, it's not really an outline. It's a map. It's like a, it's like a, it's like I'm diagramming a sentence, right? It's like an exercise and saying like, this is what the book is doing. And then I look at that and I think, okay, well, this is what the book should be doing. And so then I make a, a new thing that is closer to an outline. And when I say an outline, it's like a grid on a page. I can only be on one page. Otherwise it won't be useful to me. And I draw like, on the, my new book, it's like six lines. And it's like, here's what happens, here's what happens, here's what happens. Here's what happens, here's what happens, here's what happens. It's not, I, I'm not constructing it with a sense of like act structure or anything like that. Because I, I think that's that's for the length, that, that works for cinema, I think, but I don't know. It doesn't seem to work for me novelistically. But it's just about tracking what I'm doing so I can remember what I'm doing. And I'm not wedded to it because it changes constantly. So I have to make a new goddamn outline every time I have a new draft. <laughs> and so I'm swimming in outlines. I. I, I, I should show you, I should take a picture of it and show you the stack of manuscripts and the stack of notebooks, each of which has a different outline. And sometimes I just have to make the outline to remind, remind myself. You take, a, you take a week off of the book and you're like, shit, what happens in this book? And it's also like a kind of a useful exercise to force yourself to do that in the middle of your relationship to the book. To be like, okay, prove that you know this book by jotting down what happens in it and then checking it against the, finished, the actual manuscript. Because you're probably wrong. You've probably inverted something or you've got something wrong about the timeline and that can be illuminating, you know, I don't know. These are, these are imperfect methods. This methodology is imperfect, but it's what I, it's what I do. Well, and it's always interesting to hear and there's a lot of common sense to it. And I think that it's interesting how there could be variation from book to book, like different projects, I think will require different yeah. approaches, but there are probably some carryovers you have, you know, you're building your little system. We all have yeah. our little systems and yeah. Hey, it's whatever works. right? I think so. Cause it's hard to do. And I think you have to find, you have to identify what works for you. Like my, my first book I wrote at night, 
but I was a different person then. I was, first of all, I was younger. I had small children. So my relationship to the clock was that the day moved in this very different cycle because I would get up. My younger son was such a bad sleeper that he broke my relationship to the idea that one would or needed to sleep for six, seven, eight hours. So I was up with him. Like he would, oh my God, what a kid. We would put him to bed, you know, at eight. He'd be up at 10. We'd put him da- back down with a bottle. He'd be up at 11.30. He'd be up again at one. He'd be up again at three. And then he'd be up for good at like 4.30. And you'd just be like, well, now we're just awake and it's 4.30. And I'm like, <laughs> I would make dinner because I was awake anyway. And he was just awake and he would like sit in his swing or sit in his high, his high chair when he got a little older. And we would like hang out from 4.30 until 6.30, which is the time that normal people get up. And then he would be yawning and it'd be like, God, you fucking monster. All right, you go back to bed and now I'm just awake and I have to just go about my day. But what that allowed me to do was to work in a different way. So I could write, I wrote that first book overnight and I could never do that now. So, you know, I think your needs change, your abilities change. And I think you have to remain I have to remain flexible. And so I'm always so skeptical when when people say, this is what works. What, what I'm saying to you is this is what's worked for me. And it changes as you as you change. Yeah, and I think that the takeaway that I'm gathering is just don't be too precious. You yeah. know, like tweeting on the subway, a draft of this book. It's like, yeah, you don't have to have the chamomile tea and the indirect light. Just start working. You don't. You don't. Work with I what mean, you have. Make the best of it. Do you, do you know the writer Samantha Hunt? I know of. Yeah, brilliant, extraordinarily talented writer. And she she described to me writing, I think it must have been Mr. Splitfoot, uh, but she was pregnant with twins. And she would sit in the car. I, I, I'm forgetting now why it was that she would sit in the car, but I just had this like very powerful vision of this woman who's like pregnant and probably uncomfortable because I could imagine that must not be the most comfortable vibe in the world, sitting up in a car, like writing. And it's just what works for her. And that's, you know, it's like you have to do whatever it demands of you in that moment. And I hope her practice has changed. I hope she's not still sitting in the car. But like, (laughs) you know, sometimes you, that's what you have to do to get to that first draft. Listen, I talked to an author named Susan Strait years ago, and I still remember her telling me that she had written, I want to say most, if not all of her books in her minivan. Yeah. She would leave her house because it was too noisy and chaotic drive. She lives in Riverside, California would drive out to some desert road, pull off to the side of the road and have that peace and quiet. I get why a car could be a good spot to write. Absolutely. That's a very California story too. Yeah, right. right, Exactly. (laughs) So, uh, I want to talk, I want to shift gears and I want to talk about apocalyptic writing and the, uh, the catastrophe, the particular kind of catastrophe that you are writing about and how unsettling it is and how it is unsettling because it is amorphous. Yeah, It's the mystery of what is going on that works on the reader and works on the viewer in the film and creates this really palpable sense of tension and suspense. So can you just talk about your interest yeah. in writing about the apocalypse and where it starts from and, and how you got to what you eventually got to? 
Yeah, I mean, the truth is, and you may or may not like this answer, I don't actually think this is an apocalypse book. I think this is a work of like, I think this is very firmly in the tradition of the sort of like middle brown, middle class literary novel. It's wearing the drag of of genre, and in this case, the genre being the apocalypse, the dystopia, whatever, but it's not really about that stuff. Fair. Which is why it doesn't talk about that stuff. It suggests it. It suggests that there has been a creep towards environmental catastrophe. There's been some kind of act that is perhaps an act of war. There's been some, something has sort of slipped out of place, but it never tells you what that is. And I could tell you the story of this very day, the day that we are speaking, using the headlines of the day. And that story would seem like the story of Apocalypse because the headlines are not good. But I think that has been true for all time. I think that has always been the truth. I think every human has always felt at the end of something. And so I think the book is pretending that it is about that and using or... or, Manipulating is a difficult verb because it's it has a negative connotation, but it is manipulating the reader by using that expectation to talk, I think, about reality, about the present moment, about you and me. And it's exactly as I said to you before with your children, when you're standing in the hallway and they've slept too long and you're like, the baby's dead, my life is over, that feeling... It's expanding that feeling to become global or universal. But it's in pursuit of something that's small and and human, I think. I think. I don't know. I mean, how do you know what your own book is about? But that's what I think. (laughs) Well, there's enormous suspense in both book and movie. You mentioned Hitchcock earlier. I was very gratified to hear you say that because I had not read – I went into the movie – just to see it. I didn't read a yeah. bunch of interviews and uh with Sam and I was like uh I was like this is very Hitchcockian. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Like I the think camera work yeah. and the tension Absolutely. and just the sense of unease. I was like okay, this is really bringing me back. And I also I mean North North by Northwest, right? Like there's a scene in the film where Mahersh Lali is running from a plane. And that's North by Northwest, right? That's what that is. Right. And I am really confident about that. And I've heard Sam talk about that, which is why I feel comfortable saying that. And that's one of the joys of, of, of a book or any work of art is like that there's a language of reference that you can play with and that it conjures in the audience something. Like you don't have to know North by Northwest. Actually, my kid knows North by Northwest as like a gag from the Simpsons. Do you remember the episode of Simpsons where Marge's father was a flight attendant? (laughs) And there's like a really funny scene where a plane is sort of chasing them, her through a cornfield. That's like, that's what art is. It's like drawing all these connections and it's so bracing. I wasn't thinking about Hitchcock when I was writing, but there's a lot of stuff I was thinking about that I still, that I think about when I see the movie, like Edward Albee's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. What about, and, and you read Pet Cemetery? I read. I did read Pet Cemetery. That is a fucked up book. Oh my <laughs> God. That is, oh, that is a dark 
book. But that is a book, interestingly, that is a book about the feeling I'm describing. That is a book about imagining the death of your child. The, the, like, one of the darkest things a parent can force themselves to imagine. That is what that book is about. And it is really scary. Much, much scarier, I think, on the page than it is on the screen. And it's useful to look at, like, I, I don't, again, I don't think that my book is actually, it's, it's, it's borrowing from the conventions of genre as I understand them, but it's not really honoring them. Which is why the book was sort of like a difficult sell initially with my editor, with my agent. There was a little bit of like, oh, you know, like, it's like, feels like a horror novel, but like, you never see the monster. Which is as difficult to sell as saying it's a murder mystery, but we're never going to tell you who the killer is. Because then it becomes, then it's like, oh, well, why are you provoking me? Why are you breaking the contract of the form? You better be doing it in service of something. You better be doing it really well. Like, why does that, but why does my book feel so creepy, but never really explain the source of that unease? I mean, I have an answer. I think it's, I, I think that's the whole point, right? Like it has to do that, but I'm sure there are readers who are like, what is this? It's all atmosphere and no, no scare. I never see the monster under the bed, so I don't get it, you know? Well, but one of the ways, I think one of the devices that you use to help create this sense of suspense and to bring the reader along in a way that is gripping is the use of omniscience yeah. so that the reader knows things that the characters don't. Like that feels like a very critical choice, especially in a novel like you're describing that is sort of this weird hybrid and that does not deliver the monster in a manner uh, consistent with like a traditional genre horror novel, say. Well, okay. So it's so, I'm so happy you asked this question because this, your audience will really appreciate this. All credit where it is due. You have to listen to your editors. It is imperative to be, to trust your editor. You're, you're, I guess you're lucky if you have an editor you trust, but they are trying to help you. So my editor on the book initially was Megan Lynch, who's now the publisher of Flatiron Books. She's a brilliant woman. She said to me on draft six or whatever draft of the book she read, she said to me, okay, it's important and maybe imperative that these people never know what's happening to them. However, if the reader doesn't know, then the book is really fucking annoying. Those were her words. And she was like, in its current state, this book is really fucking annoying. And you have to figure out how to get the reader to know what the characters don't know. And she said that to me, and I thought about it for a long time, or how, you know, whatever. And I was like, oh, right, well, the book can just tell you. The book can talk directly to the reader and talk around the characters. And that's what it does. And that was... That is what I think, if the book works at all, that is what makes it work. You know, it's when you know, the book just starts talking to you. Yeah. I mean, that's like, that's really interesting and consistent with things that I've heard over the years in these conversations is that there is usually like a linchpin to any yeah. narrative that works. There's some piece of it without which the whole thing would fall apart. And you probably couldn't say that about other elements. You probably could remove one or two things here or there. Oh yeah. And, I could and, change a name. I could, I could age a character up or down. I could change the, the family dynamics. I could change the plot but there's something about the operation of the little machine that requires 
this intervention, this ability for the book to tap you on the shoulder and say, like, guess what's happening? And that, it, it first of all, it's not new. There, it, to, to accomplish something novel on the page is actually an impossibility, right? It's just something that's out of fashion. This is like a, this is Dickens. This is like a Victorian device where the book is being told to you by God and it can see inside of everybody's head and knows what everybody is thinking. And I think the way that I got there, I've talked about this in the past, is my experience of reading to my children. When you read to your kids, which is such a, I love, I loved reading to my kids. Effectively, what you're, what, what is happening is they're experiencing Sandra Boynton when they're very little and then later like, you know, Frank Baum, because I remember specifically reading The Wizard of Oz to my younger son. They're experiencing that, but they're hearing it in the way you're performing it and what you're emphasizing and what you're telling them. And there were moments, especially in The Wizard of Oz, which is quite scarier on the page than it is on the screen, where I would intervene and be like, oh, well, this is just pretend. I remember so clearly, there's a part in The Wizard of Oz where she's with the lion and something happens. I don't think it's in the movie. They're in a field. Something happens. Something pretty scary happens. And I remember my kid like putting the pillow over his head and being like, ah, I can't listen to this. He was little. And I remember saying to him like, well, this is just pretend. So the so I, who was the book for him because he couldn't read at the time, was asserting the falsity of what was happening inside of the book. So effectively rewriting or interpreting the book for his benefit. And that is sort of what the narrative perspective in Leave the World Behind is doing. It's it's taking you out of what's really frightening or unknown and saying like, oh, well, these guys don't know, but this is what's happening. And at one point it talks about like the trees. It's like, well, you know, the trees actually know what's happening. And that's interesting. The trees can sort of feel that there are bombs going off in the distance. And it's so... I don't know. Once I did that, I started really having fun with it. I was like, oh, well, this can be anything. The book can know anything and have access to anything. And so I just chose all the things that I find most terrifying, like the idea of dying on the subway or dying in an elevator and just saying like, guess what? Somebody died in an elevator. Pretty scary, you know? And like, (laughs) you know, and I think that really does, I think that's sort of, as you say, you know, the word you used was linchpin. And I think that's right. I think it's sort of like, that's when the book began to function properly. Yeah. And it's, it's fun. Those creative choices that you make in terms of like the symptoms of this like looming catastrophe or whatever it is that's happening as the, like the background noise of this book. And it's, uh, you know, a blackout, that strange noise, the actual strange noise that they experience, uh, plane crashes, the herd of deer that appear. Yeah. I hate deer. Okay, uh, I'm so I'm so freaked out by deer, so that's why. Yeah. Okay, flamingos. I mean, they're I'm just... also freaked out by birds, you know. <laughs> uh, and uh, the the teeth, right? Like, oh. I think most people have a primal sort of feeling about their teeth. And for me, you know, right, your dad, it's like super cute when a kid loses his teeth. It's like so cute. It's like the sweetest. Like, they they look so funny, and like their their grown up teeth are so big in relation to their little tiny faces that when they start to come in, they look so, they're just like, it's very sweet. It's like a tender human thing that then is rendered horrific when you're talking about a a teenage boy, like a, a grown boy losing his teeth is not adorable. It's horrifying. And 
even talk, it's funny, like even talk, I wrote this thing, right? I've seen it, I've seen it on screen and it still gives me like a creepy feeling. Yeah, that you part know? of the movie, it, like, you know, it was a small audience because I was at a screening and it was like everyone sort of started squirming. <laughs> yeah, you can't. It's like hard to look at. You're like, oh, God, I can't yeah. watch this. Yeah, no. yeah. So I uh, I want to talk to you about something that I think often comes up, not only with respect to this book, but with your body of work. And it has to do with writing outside of your immediate sphere of personal experience. Yeah. I have to ask because you do an excellent job of sort of sending up white upper middle class existence. It's a very yeah. knowing telling. And I know from like reading up a little bit that you were raised in the suburbs of DC yeah. in this milieu. Like this is very yeah. familiar to you. You went to a yeah. school where most everybody was white upper middle class. So in some sense, this is, uh, th these are your people, right? These are the people you grew up around yeah. at least. And I look, I live in, I live in Brooklyn for Christ's sake. Right. I'm just talking about myself here. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. right. But you get some, I mean, there can be pushback on this sort of stuff, not necessarily specifically with you, but just in general, you'll see it sometimes Yeah, where a writer will try to write outside of his or her uh, sphere and it'll be like, yeah. hey, that's appropriation or hey, you know, you did yeah, this really, you did this really poorly. And yeah. yeah, just talk about that choice and that maybe consistency to your work. It's something you're very interested in. Yeah, and I can get away with it because I'm not white and I'm not black. I'm sort of in the cultural imagination. I am in. I'm other. I'm just like in in between zone, and so it's a risk. And any reader could say like, "You got this wrong. You got this, th you know, thing wrong." But to me, the very question lays bare the fallacy. There's no singular black experience. There's no singular female experience. There's no singular trans experience. Right, like. Fiction ought to be in pursuit of the human experience. And if you, as a writer, attempt to uh, embody or envision the life of a person other than yourself, like, I think that should be the pursuit. I think it is a valuable pursuit. And I think it's like readers can smell your intention. If you want to write about, if you're not a Black person and you want to write about Black people in order to suggest that they suggest something bad about them, readers aren't stupid. They, they're going to see that. But if you are not a Black person and you want to render the experience of a Black person on the page because you feel like it enriches the fictional world you're trying to build, I think that's a worthy pursuit. And I think more people should attempt it. I think this particular sensitivity is well-meaning but misplaced and has resulted in the fiction of this particular moment, which is... Autofiction is a part of this. I think this comes from another place, autofiction specifically, but it's a fiction where the authorial self is sort of run through a filter. And most of the books that I have looked at the past handful of years, the contemporary books, are told in this very close third person that's almost a first person. It doesn't dare to presume or assert the self on the page, but sort of talks very knowingly about it as this universal experience. And then what happens is that then that reifies this idea that the novel is a space of this sort of middle-class, middle-brow whiteness. And if we allowed our writers a little more trust, if we accorded them a little more trust, we may see a fiction that was slightly more representative of the reality that we inhabit. Because our white writers, of course, know people who are not white. 
But if they are afraid to put that on the page, then what is going to happen is that the fiction is just going to feel overwhelmingly white. Okay. I can interject here with like a personal aside because in the editorial process for my book, I worked my, my latest book, I worked with an edit, like a developmental editor who like a third party unassociated with my publisher. I just kind of worked mm -hmm. on the manuscript, but this person suggested that in instances where I had referred to I think I referred to a cab driver. I mean, my book was autofiction, so I was probably working from an actual memory. And I referred mm -hmm. to a cab driver as like a Sikh cab driver. And they were like, and then another time it was like a receptionist was Latina or something like that. And they were like, yeah, I would take these out. You know, why does it matter? And then I got spooked. And I live in Los Angeles. And I think in my intent anyway was like, I'm just trying to describe like my, the reality of living here is that, you know, some, you'll call an Uber and, You'll get this picked up. One. It's a tough this one. It's a tough one. It's a tough one because, of course, you're not saying, "Oh, my cab driver was Sikh," and that is how all cab drivers are. Right? Like, it's like this sensitivity is misplaced because of I have had a Sikh cab driver. Right? Like that feels accurate, and it's not like I think I think that readers are smart enough to know the difference. I think, I, I really do. And I think that a lot of this sensitivity, what it does, it ends up um, blunting the effect of fiction on the reader themselves. And then we end up talking about literary fiction using the language that's more applicable to YA. And it's something I feel really strongly about. I think it's very, again, well-intentioned, but silly. Hmm. Sometimes the receptionist is Latina. The implication is not that all receptionists are Latina or what's worse that like, then what are you saying? Oh, that's somehow low. And that to be a receptionist is low. And it can all, that is the most to which a Latina woman could aspire. Like, no, of course that's not what you're saying. What you're attempting to do is conjure a scene. And it, it, it to me, it's as morally neutral as if you described a plate as being blue rather than white. And, you know, this is a problem of whiteness, actually. White people are the ones who are afraid of this. Black people, brown people do not walk around all day saying, I am brown or black. And they understand that if you were describing them like in a room, you would you would you take pains to be like, oh, I'm talking about the woman over there in the brown skirt, you know, the woman with the, with the purple purse, you know, the woman with the short hair, or would you just say, I'm talking about the black woman Yeah, for right. Christ's sake. You would just say, I'm talking about the black woman. She knows she's black. It's not a bad thing. So I think that this, again, like, I just think we've taken this particular thing too far. And I think it has sincerely impeded something in fiction and it's too bad. I think that the insular novel of the self can be fascinating. And there are certain writers who do it really well. Insular sounds like I'm being really judgmental in a way I don't mean to be. But Ben Lerner is really good at doing this. But I have personally seen a lot of C minus Ben Lerner novels. And I'm not interested in them. They're not interested in, in, mining the self and and coming up with gold what they are is they're afraid to look past the self because they're operating in a political climate in which there's a feeling that that is somehow verboten and that seems very silly to me 
But I've mostly like I I think I have largely avoided outrage. Maybe this interview will outrage people. <laughs> I don't know, but <laughs> I <still> don't. <laughs> I don't. I'm not trying to get away with something. I'm trying to write about the world. I'm trying to write about this reality. And guess what? There are black people in this reality. Two of them live in my house, and they're the two of the people I care about most on the planet. It doesn't necessarily give me a right. I'm not black. I'll never know what it's like to be a black person. But like, if your fiction isn't trying to get to something, then what are you doing? And I think like what we're talking about here, at least to some extent, is fear. And you can't be writing from a protective crouch or creating from a protective crouch. There has no, to be some element of abandon in order for the work to be vital. And I think the fine line that people have to walk is like, you know, if you're going to do the kind of work that you do where you are writing outside of your sphere of experience, you just have to do it well. <laughs> and if you don't, the book isn't going to find a home or if it does find a home, it's probably not going to be well received, right? I think that's right. I think you have to try and do it well. And I think you have to, and again, I just think that the, the, the subtle implication of this is that there is some kind of monolithic black experience that you can get right or wrong on the page. And I just, I think that's very silly. And I think that's like actually profoundly insulting to suggest. And so that is why I say this is a problem of whiteness. This is a problem concocted by whiteness that feels that it, it can work in service of not, of, of, of not offending what it understands to be some monolithic experience. And it, that overlooks the essential humanity of the people we are talking about. So in terms of advising writers who might want to try this, but might have some level of discomfort, I think what I'm hearing you say is that most crucially, it's just to approach it like writing about the human experience. Right? I think so. And I, I worry that I worry sometimes that when I say that, it sounds a little like all lives matter or some shit. Like that's not what I'm saying. Like there are, there's, there are very particular anthropological and cultural touchstones that if you want to render what it is to be Sikh in Los Angeles, you have to get those right. Absolutely. Sure. There's no question. Right. But like you as a writer should be working in good faith enough to know that, right? And to know that if you describe somebody in passing as Sikh or Black or reliant upon a wheelchair, that's not an insult to that person who, for the record, doesn't even exist, right? We're talking about made-up people. Where I find, I don't know, what I do is I look at good books. I read, this is the, the only writing, the only salient writing advice is to just read books by people who are better than you. And there is no shortage of that. And you see people using imagination in really big ways. And sometimes you read a book. I read uh, Delta Wedding by Eudora Welty earlier this summer. And sometimes you read a book like that from a different time period. That where the attitudes about race are startling and really discomforting. And, you know, if you are writing a book set in that, in that time, in that part of the nation, like that is what you have to get right. Like, and I think readers can understand that. I want to believe that there are still readers reading now who can read Delta Wedding and say like, I get it. I understand. Like, I'm not, this is not a, the, no, uh, the novel is sort of like a morally neutral form. It's not saying like, oh yeah, we should, we should have servants 
who are the children of the people who were once our slaves and that we should talk about them as subhuman. It's not endorsing that, it's depicting that because that is what happened. And I think it's okay to acknowledge that that happened. And I think that like, we're adults, like we should be able to handle that. So if you say to me, I had a cab driver who was Sikh. Yeah, it happens. It's not, there's no, there's no deeper like nefarious meaning there, you know? And I don't know. I don't have a good answer beyond that. Like I have, as you say, I've gotten away with it or I've, I've, I've continued to do it. I have been, sometimes I'm surprised by like the things people say about the work. I had somebody challenge me. There's a scene in, in the book and leave the world behind. It's in the movie too, where uh, the boy, the teenager is masturbating. And I had someone say like, Oh, that's like disgusting. What's wrong with you? And I was like, well, bro, I was a teenage boy. Like I have news for you about how reality works. You know, I, sorry to tell you, like, this is like, it, we're adults. Like if we like th this, what I'm talking about is applicable to the literary novel, right? Like, Reality isn't always pretty. People, like, this is what people do. And I think it is okay to put it on the page. And I think that, by and large, readers can accept that. And I think we have, have sort of weathered a period where readers were actually being really condescended to, I think. Well, and yeah, and, I wanted you know, to, on a related note, wanted to ask you about, like, the times that we live in. Because this book does speak to our lived history, especially this recent period where things felt really chaotic during the pandemic and the election. I mean, that was just a uniquely intense time to be alive. And I think your book in some ways mirrors that. But, you know, it's interesting because I don't know if I think it's uniquely intense. Like, how did people feel in 1917 when the Archduke was assassinated and like the, the reality of European political order was like wobbling? How did literate people with access to information feel in that moment? I get they probably that. Felt, right? They probably felt exactly as we feel when we're like, oh, we're running this octogenarian for president against this other octogenarian who's a fucking lunatic. Like, what? why is the whole system wobbling like this? I think in some ways that's a very fundamental human experience of the present moment. But don't you think that especially 2020, just as like the central example in terms of our, our generation. Let's wait and see how bad it can get, Brad. <laughs> we may be saying that about 2023. Yeah. You know, but it was, I mean, in my lived, we were, it was bad. No, roughly, I, yeah, we're roughly was, the same age. We're roughly the same age. I think it was the most unusual year of my life in a yeah. political context or whatever. And also just like public health crisis and everything. Yeah. Um, do you have a sense? I have to ask. I mean, since you seem to be an astute observer and you have like a good antenna for the vibes that uh, the culture is giving off, like where we were then and maybe where we were during the writing of Leave the World Behind versus mm -hmm. where we are now, do you have any sense of motion? Do you have any sense? Because I think I read somewhere where you were talking about the, the Franz Ferdinand example and trying to kind of parse that particular moment, which with the benefit of hindsight was so pivotal to history, yep. but at the time of its occurrence might have been difficult to see. Have yep. you seen, has there been a Franz Ferdinand moment that we may not be fully aware of or understanding of? In my opinion, and this is just guesswork, uh, yeah, it's the age of the billionaire. The age of the billionaire, the age of the American billionaire, the notion of the 
sheer existence of the billionaire is so deeply offensive to the logic that should govern the world that I do think that that is ultimately going to be the next. This is what my new book is about. It's about a billionaire. It's not new territory, right? DeLillo has written about this. There's something wrong. And these, these people should not exist. It should not be possible. And American society has, has dealt with this once before, right? Like the 1920, the 1920s, that is what was happening, right? The, the accrual of wealth on an unimaginable scale in the hands of a handful of people. And at least, at least, John Rockefeller felt some need to accrue an art collection. And at least Andrew Carnegie felt some need to build libraries all over this country. I don't know. Right now we seem to have a billionaire class with very little sense of moral obligation to humanity. These idiots want to go to fucking space, right? They want to buy the worst art in the world by... Takashi Murakami and Jeff Koons, the most hideous shit you've ever seen. They want to build these like utterly tasteless, sprawling houses in Calabasas. You know, they want to build these super yachts. They want to, they're, they're, it's like a colossal joke at our expense. And it's so deeply immoral. You know, I'm sure you've heard that this, this, like, I'm sure it's happened in your own community. The idea that American school children are paying for lunch is so insane that like you almost like, what are you talking about? Right. And you hear these stories like, Oh, heartwarming story of like the lunch lady raising money. So the sixth graders could walk in the graduation. It's like, what the fuck are we talking about? What the fuck are we doing in this society? And I, I think, I suspect that will be the thing of this age. And you see it valorized, right? It's satirized on television, but really we're, we have so distorted a relationship to it that we look at something like uh, Succession, a TV show that I found utterly odious, and people will miss that it's satire and think that it is, uh, you know, almost valedictory. Right. People watched Succession and talked about like the Brunello Cuccinelli clothes. And it's like, what are you? We, our relationship to money is so completely warped and insane that I, uh, that's my sense of what is, what will be the zeitgeist, you know? And I think you see it in, in Hernan Diaz's last book. You know, ultimately, that is a book about authority and authorship maybe more than it is about money, but he is doing something with that. He's sort of making hay of that same material. And it's, it felt to me like he was writing about this moment, even though it's an historical novel. So I think that's what's coming. And you finished this new novel that is about yeah. the billionaire. Yeah. It'll be out in the fall of next year. Wow. Well, something to look forward to. It has been a delight to meet you and to talk with you and congratulations on all the success that you've been having. And with this adaptation hitting theaters and, what is it? I never know when it's going to be available on streamers. This seems December eighth. December. Oh, December eighth. Yeah, December eighth. Okay. So it's there. It's there as your audience is listening to this. And this on was ne- so on Netflix. great on Netflix. Yeah, this is so great. You are a good interviewer. 
I hope you didn't trap me into saying something I'm going to regret. <laughs> I, pay, I paid you, actually. I just... And representation. But no, it was great. It was a great conversation. So thank you for your attention. It's really, it really means a lot. All right, everybody. There we have it. That was my conversation with Ruman Alam. His novel is called Leave the World Behind, available now in trade paperback from Echo Press. You can also watch the film adaptation in select theaters or on Netflix, directed by Sam Esmail and starring Julia Roberts, Ethan Hawke, and Mahershala Ali. You can find Ruman Alam on the internet at rumanalam.com. Follow him on Instagram and Twitter. One more time, the novel is called Leave the World Behind. It's also the name of the movie. Go get your copy. Go watch the movie. Go do both at the same time. It's up to you. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to shows. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the program on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. Subscribe for free to my newsletter over at bradlisty.substack.com. Join the Other People Patreon community over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Help keep this show going into the future. If you have a couple of minutes and you want to do me a quick favor, please give this show a rating wherever you listen. So Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, whatever it is, rate the show, review the show. It helps the show find new listeners. If you would like to get some other people gear, a t-shirt or a sweatshirt, you can do that at otherppl.com. And finally, a quick plug for my latest novel. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so it makes a great holiday gift. I'm just saying. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. All right, so coming up on Wednesday, I will be in conversation with E.J. Coe, author of the debut novel, The Liberators, available now from Tin House. The Liberators is the official December pick of the Other People Book Club. You can sign up for the Other People Book Club over at otherppl.com. It also makes a great holiday gift, a book club membership for the book nerd in your life. So check that out and check out my conversation with EJ Co. coming up in just a couple of days. Stay tuned.